This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers. And this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, the last time we chatted, you mentioned a pet peeve that had to do with doors being left open in movies and TV shows. And I have not watched a lot of TV shows since. I've watched two, but I am... My eye is on every door to see if they close it because I want to be as upset as you are when this happens. I suspect, but, I suspect if it didn't bother you before, it's not going to bother you enough now to notice it. But you, at that time, you mentioned you had another pet peeve, but you couldn't remember what it was. Have you been able to dredge that out of your memory banks? Yes, it came to me and I was like, oh my God, I've got to tell this one too. <laughs> so... Um, it is okay. So my number one pet peeve would be what we call close the goddamn door. And this one I'm going to nickname, does he, or does he not already know who you are? <laughs> and so the scenario is this, right? Our primary character makes a phone call. The person on the other end picks up and the primary character says, Hey, it's me. That's it. That's my pet peeve. And it makes me nuts every single time. I'd, here's why. Okay. So like 90% of the time, the person doing the calling is connecting with someone they already know. Someone's waiting for them to call, right? And this is the modern digital age, right? And that means that cell phone, we have cell phones and caller ID. So 90% of the time, the person picking up already knows who's calling before the caller utters a single word. So ask yourself, how many times in the last, say, decade, if ever, have you made or received a call where the other person says, hey, it's me? And you don't even have to think about it. I can tell you right now the answer is zero. Nobody does this. And, and here's why, okay? So here's how phone calls go in real life. You call, someone else picks up. The someone who picks up is the person to speak first. And then in response, to what that person who's picking up says, you, the caller, respond. So what I'm saying is, unless that person who picks up doesn't say anything, the caller's first line is always going to be directly influenced by how that person answered the phone. Like, hello, this is John. Steve, what's up? Oh, I really can't talk right now. Who is this? That's how people answer their phones, okay? So it doesn't matter what that person says, hey, it's me, is never an actual reply. <laughs> Real replies are like, oh, thank God you picked up. What's up, my dude? Hey, I've got news. You got a minute? Is John available? Andrea, how are you? Did you see what Bill said about the XYZ thing? That's how we respond to this acknowledgement that we receive when somebody picks up the phone, right? All right, fine. That is how real life works, right? That's what you're thinking. But movies, they're a little different. 
They involve a lot of extreme scenarios. Characters are borrowing phones or calling from burners or, you know, once upon a time phone booths or whatever. And that means that in those scenarios, even if the person picking up the call has caller ID, they don't necessarily know who's calling them. Or maybe they're on a landline, you're calling an office and there's no caller ID, whatever. To which I say, thank you for making my point. Because, hey, it's me, is exactly three words. And of those three words, none of them provide any useful information in identifying who's made the call. So the only thing those three words are actually providing is this this tiny little voice print. That's it. So either the person on the other end recognizes the voice just by those three words, in which case two of them are absolutely redundant, because you either recognize the voice or you don't, or if the person picking up the other on the other end doesn't know the caller well enough to recognize them by voice alone, then all three of those words are redundant. It's not going to fix that problem. Hey, It's Me provides zero information. It doesn't even make sense in the oh-so-ancient historical pre-caller ID context. But it shows up like over and over and over and over in movies. And what I can't figure out is if it's just one of those things that continues to exist simply because it always has. Like, it's just done so frequently and consistently that it's just this default. It's this throwaway line to inter- to say so- to open the conversation and people <clears throat> who are writing that into dialogue they just do it automatically because that's how it's always been done and it just never even crosses their mind that it's just this overuse absurd thing or maybe there actually is some like unspoken movie making purpose to it that makes sense once you know what it is which i don't so like if there is a real reason that that just so absurd piece of dialogue keeps getting used. I want to know what it is. So like if there are among our listeners, any of you are script writers or you're part of this whole visual storytelling world and you have insight into this, please, please send it my way so that I can stop being peeved about this pet thing. <laughs> so anyway, that's my rant. Hey, it's me. Why? Why? What's the point of even saying it? I don't get it because nobody does in real life. All done. Well, I have absolutely nothing, nothing to add to uh, that pet peeve. And or, or, will there be more? Are there more pet peeves or, or have you limited it to two? Was that not enough? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure there's other stuff that bothers me, but those two, like, they just show up so often that I keep thinking, how, how, how does this keep happening? Like, why is this a thing? And I don't think there's anything else that's jumped out at me that strongly. But trust me, if I make note of one, I will be sure to share it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about the danger of taking storytelling shortcut. So Taylor, give us some examples of that danger. What are we talking about? Okay. So this is actually going to be another uh, TV slash movie based observation. I've, I've been trying to be more observant like I never like oh how do you even say this and watching tv is new for me up until the last year or so I just didn't I didn't have the time didn't really enjoy it because I just had I'm really 
ADHD. And it's really hard for me to just sit there and just pay attention unless it interests me. But my life has calmed down a lot since the big upheaval and chaos. And so I do have more of that kind of sort of luxury free time than I used to. And while I could be putting it to more productive use, I justify wasting the time by saying, well, I'm actually learning at the same time. So I have to do these podcasts about TV to make it worth my time <laughs> of watching the TV shows. But in seriousness, there, there is stuff, a lot of stuff that can be learned craft-wise uh, through watching TV and movies, if you're paying attention to it. And there were a couple things that came up recently in some shows and I want to talk about one of them today. And next week, we'll cover the other one. So this first one, really, the, the punchline is the danger of taking story sh storytelling shortcuts. This is what I call my TV observation set number one. And it came from a limited series on Netflix called Bodyguard. And this series is out of UK, I think. And it's about a combat vet with PTSD who is now working for the security service and he's assigned to protect a pro-war cabinet member who was one of the people who pushed for troops to be sent to Afghanistan, which is where all the things that traumatized him happened. So that's the initial conflict setup right off the bat is that she is exactly opposite somebody that he would want to protect. But he's very professional. So, you know, he's going to do his job regardless. But anyway, in the story, bad stuff happens. And, you know, our hero gets caught all up in the middle of it. And it has some shades of Kevin Costner in No Way Out, you know, only to a point. And the acting is just superb. And most of the plotting is fantastic. And most of the characterizations are incredibly well done. And the first three episodes just left me stunned absolutely stunned at how many layers of inner conflict versus external conflict were successfully integrated into this main character. Like, I honestly don't think I've ever seen that level of authentic complexity portrayed on screen like that before. I mean, it was truly awe-invoking. And this whole stories, whole series. And it's a limited series. So that means like, it, I don't think it goes from season to season. It's just a one-time deal, kind of like how Queen's Gambit was. And this one is only six episodes. And each one is, I think, about an hour long. So if you're someone who really enjoys that self-contained story and doesn't like to get dragged out, this is definitely for you. Yeah, it's just good. It's really, really good. And it's a very, this is a very complex story. There are a lot of moving parts, a lot of competing motives, which also function as red herrings. And just on a personal level, I am so painfully aware from my own experiences of trying to assemble these complex stories of just how bleeping difficult it is to do that, much less the challenge of tying up loose threads and connecting dots without involving a lot of extraneous story and also trying to do that with while avoiding cliches and tropes and even more so when there's no obvious mechanism for showing things that have never 
had a character to follow through, to show it through their eyes or to follow them when you're on screen to show what's been motivating them or whatever. This is a very, very difficult story to tell on screen successfully. And I respect the storytelling in this so much. And the entire thing is just stunningly brilliant right up into the final 20 minutes. And those final 20 minutes made me so mad for what could have been, for what should have been. Because whoever wrote this, produced it, directed it, they knew what they were doing. This team was top notch and they should have had the ability to carry that same level of brilliance all the way through to the end. And like, if this whole thing from the beginning to the end had just been kind of meh, we wouldn't have anything to talk about here because I would have just shrugged off the things that bothered me. Like, okay, whatever, you know, that's just, you have to make sacrifices in storytelling. You know, I, I get, I see what they were doing there. It is what it is. But because the rest of it was so brilliant, it, it was like this part of it just was like somebody stabbing me in the eye. I, I just couldn't understand how did this happen unless just pure indifference. Like how, why, how could you do this to us? <laughs> so anyway, here's the scenario, right? And I'm going to do my best to avoid spoilers because if you haven't seen this, you really should. It's really, really good. The, uh, we get to this part towards the end where the lead investigators, they finally connected the dots on some of these last open questions. But realistically, they do not have zero, they do not have physical evidence. They have zero physical evidence and, I mean, barely circumstantial evidence to point to this one particular suspect. But they know from all these other puzzle pieces that it, that it has to be this person. But by this point in the story, the audience has even less to point to this particular suspect, even less than the investigators do. So from the first time that this character was introduced all the way into this last bit, the character has done a fantastic, wholly convincing job of maintaining their alibi, keeping their name out of the investigators' mouths as a suspect. I mean, they've just done a bang up job. So when the investigators are like, wait a minute, and they come to see this character again, the only thing that character has to do to stay out of the spotlight is shut up and continue staying the course. But do they do that? Do they do the self-preserving smart thing? No, of course not. No. So instead, the first time the investigators hint that the suspect might not have been entirely truthful. The suspect opens their big mouth and starts bragging about how smart they are and how stupid everyone else is and basically just confesses everything. So after nearly six hours of nothing but bleeping brilliance, we are basically handed a villain monologue to tie up the final threats. That is insulting. Not because it's a stupid trope of convenience, but because this particular use of this particular stupid convenient trope also happened to violate everything that had been established about that particular character up until that point. And that's fine in itself. Like that can be done if it's deftly handled, right? But for it to work, like if you're really trying to keep who the guilty party is under wraps and be very careful that the reader, the audience doesn't guess until the end, 
totally cool. You can do that. You can you can violate everything you've established about the characters so that becomes this big switch. Not a problem as long as you've laid the groundwork for it. And in this case, there's just nothing. There's not even a hint that there's a reason for it. Like not even an implausible reason. There is no reason for it, no benefit, not even a sense that the character feels trapped or like the game is up. It's like they just up and slit their own throat for no reason. And the most maddening thing about it is it didn't have to be that way. Because the this like this whole entire scene, the entire plot line involving that character, it could have worked exactly as it was. It could have made perfect sense to the character as the character has been had been established, to the story and the way the character had been woven through the story. It could have even escaped becoming a trope. If only the scene itself, that final scene, had included something, anything, to give that suspect a plausible, self-interested reason to open their big mouth. But it wasn't there. The story mechanisms to allow for this, they're already built in. The investigators, they had already done just a bang-up job digging into other suspects' lies and bringing out truth from them. They were really good. They knew what they were doing. Those scenes had been brilliantly written and brilliantly acted. So this scene easily could have followed in that direction. It easily could have used those same interrogation skills, that same ability to read a character, the same ability to trap a character in a lie by showing them something the character didn't realize the investigators already knew. And in that way, they could have tripped up the suspect so that the suspect felt that their carefully built construct was beginning to crack. And then through those cracks, the rest could come pouring through and it would have felt authentic. It wouldn't have felt like a villain monologue because it would have felt organic to what was happening in that moment. And it really wouldn't have taken that much effort to do that, it might have added, I don't know, maybe a minute of dialogue. But that in itself, it could have created sort of a secondary type crescendo to the story where this thing of like, will they or will they not be able to elicit a confession and put this to rest for good? But none of that gets utilized. Instead, it's just sort of this abrupt shift. And then it's like, wait, what? Why? Why would that person do that? Like, what was the point of them even spending all that time playing this game and covering their tracks only to just out of the blue, give it all up the minute somebody says, well, you haven't really been truthful, have you? Like the suspect didn't even make them work for it. They just slit their own throat. Okay, that's the way that I see it. And to be fair, I can also see how maybe the groundwork for that scene did originally exist at some point. Like maybe those particular issues had been handled in an earlier draft. And maybe someone who was story dumb just missed the point of those scenes or those conversations or misunderstood the details that were being shown. And it all got muddied through some subsequent drafts being passed to different writers and the focus ended up directed elsewhere. Like I could see how that had happened because. I started picking up issues 
in scenes involving that particular character, maybe about halfway through the story. And these were really glaringly obvious details. And I mean, obvious in a filmmaking sense, like the audience sees what the camera sees and the camera was definitely seeing these things. But none of the other characters in that scene seemed to pick up on them. And they absolutely should have. And the fact that they didn't, that I, the audience, was seeing things that these characters should be seeing, it felt so off, like, this is not right. That actually turned to the friends that I was watching with this, watching this with. And I was like, something's wrong with this scene. Something's happening here that doesn't make sense. Like this, see what's happening? Like this is what's going on. And none of those characters seem to notice it. So it was like noticeable enough to me that I actually out loud said something about it at the time. But at the time I also was only halfway through. So I didn't know if it was a plotting slash character issue. Like the audience needs to know these things, but the plot demands the characters remain oblivious. So we're just going to run with this rather than rewrite it. Like maybe that's what's going on. Or if it was actually setting up, like it was foreshadowing something that would make sense later in the story. Like maybe one of these characters needed to remain oblivious and that is intending to foreshadow that one of them is a bad guy later, like that type of thing. I didn't know which way it was going. I just knew like, oh, this is not right. Something's off here, right? So it's not like this suspect wasn't on my radar. It's not like I wasn't aware that something was wrong. It's just that it was it's like, I, I knew there was something more about them than was being let on, but it's that did tangentially connect back to what the camera was seeing in those scenes. Everything that went on had no relation whatsoever to where the story actually went. So these so-called clues, maybe they were intended as, they weren't actually clues at all. So there was simply no connection that would let you look back and go, oh yeah, it was all there all along, hiding in plain sight. And maybe that was deliberate, like, as a red herring so that you really, really didn't suspect this person. I don't know. I just know that for me, once I'd reached the end, once we had that villain monologue scene and I understood now what the connection was supposed to be, and I could see it in retrospect, just the entire conceit of it felt a lot less brilliant than it did botched. So all of that said, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. And one, I am not your average viewer. So working with story for so many years, that has kind of, I think, tainted my viewing experience in the same way that working with words has tainted the reading experience for me. So it's impossible for me to separate storyteller me from audience member me. And I just take it on faith, especially considering that this was like the most watched show in the UK at some point that maybe... 95% of the audience doesn't catch the same stuff that I catch. And if they do, they're just not bothered by it in the same way that I am. And I, I'm mentioning this because if you haven't already watched Bodyguard, you should. And you should watch it without letting my criticism ruin that enjoyment. Because like I said, even with its flaws, it's really good. I highly recommend it. And, you know, just the rest of it is that good. The second thing to keep in mind is I've never written a script. 
So I have no idea if maybe the whole reason these tropes continue to show up in movies time after time is simply because the story in visual form doesn't allow for any other way to do it. But at the same time, I can literally see in my head how that entire scene would have worked exactly as it should have, how it would have erased all of the off feelings from previous scenes if it had just had a bit more dialogue, a bit more psychological push and shove. And if, especially, it that scene had been built to sell the switch itself rather than being more of an afterthought to wrap things up. And I, I also have no idea how these scenes this villain monologue in particular was originally written. It's really, truly possible that all the, well, that makes perfect sense elements. Maybe they existed in the script and the end result wasn't even because of poor plotting or creative shortcuts, but maybe somewhere in post-production, someone needed to shave a few minutes runtime off of it. And to them, they just thought that was unnecessary and it got cut and left on the, you know, left out. That could have happened too. I don't know. The point in all this is not just to complain and critique and point out how people get it wrong. I want to learn from it. I want to hopefully learn from existing mistakes in order to spare myself the trouble of having to learn from my own mistakes. And so when these types of glaring issues hit my radar, what I do is I ask myself, what can I learn from this? How can I use awareness of this thing to strengthen my own story? Storytelling. And here are my takeaways. Number one, complex, convoluted plots in which there are multiple villains, multiple competing desires, worldviews, and in which any number of those villains are kept hidden from the audience until the pieces come together at the end. Those types of stories require an inordinate amount of foresight and plotting to be able to pull it all together especially to be able to pull it off together in a satisfactory way that doesn't rely on shortcuts and tropes. So you enter at your own risk. And if you do enter, you do it knowingly, and you need to be prepared to follow all the way through and not get hung up in the last, you know, seven eighths of the story and just like, okay, this will work. It's good enough. Don't do that. And I actually know that one from my own painful experience because that's what I went through in writing Liar's Legacy. But this is a really good reminder. And I see that level of complexity in this story. So that's why I have so much respect for what was done. It's a very, very hard story to tell and to tell well. And they almost made it, almost made it all the way through. Number two, there is such a thing as being too clever and twisty for your own good or for the good of the story. Surprises and twists are only going to work if the clues are all hidden in plain sight. And you need to make sure that what you think is a clue really is a clue, that the audience is going to catch it. Otherwise, when you get to the end, the audience is just going to feel manipulated and bamboozled, not impressed, not surprised, not like, oh, I never saw that coming. Because to feel like, oh, I never saw that coming, and be all like, damn, that was good. The clues have to be there. And they weren't in this story. Three, do not rush the ending. Do not rush tying up loose ends. It doesn't matter how ready you are to be done with a project. It doesn't matter if you're running up against a word count or a page limit. Take all the time you need to bring the story to an honest, fulfilling conclusion. 
And sometimes that actually means dragging out the ending and making it move slower than you want it to move. And the reason for that is by the time you reach that point in the story, you are emotionally and mentally done. You are in a hurry to get this over with. So you are not a good judge at this point of the pacing of the ending. So slow it down. You can always go back and clean up and delete if you've gone over long. And if you've run over because you needed extra space, you can always go back and create that space by deleting and cutting down something else that's less necessary. And I speak from experience on that because I won't shave 20,000 words off a manuscript and gave myself the space I needed just by doing a quality line edit. That you yourself often don't realize how much bloat is in a story. So don't let your page count or your word count make you feel like you have to speed things along towards the end to fit it within those um, parameters, because you can make that space elsewhere if you need to. You've got to get the ending right. You've got to land it. Otherwise, you can totally like ruin everything that came up before. Like somebody like me was very, you know, I'm just using myself as an example, but everybody's going to have their own standards. You know, your audience could be there fully invested with you all the way up to the end. And then you mess that up because you rushed it or you fell on a trope or you took shortcuts and you ruin all the goodwill that you've built all the way up to that point. Don't do that to yourself. You deserve better than that. And those are my thoughts from my TV and story observation set number one based on Bodyguard. And I will piggyback on what you were saying about nailing the ending of your book. Um, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've read books from authors whose work I like, and I'm three quarters of the way through the book, and it's like, yeah, this is, this is not their best work. I'm not, I don't know whether I want to read the next book, uh, their next book or not. And I'll get to the ending, and the ending is so good that I just go and pre-order the next book. So the, the ending, like a, like a dessert at the end of an average meal, a great dessert makes you want to come back to the restaurant. Um, a great ending to an average book, at least for a, a volume reader like me, gets me to go and click the pre-order link for the next book in the series because I suddenly I'm fully invested back in the storyline again. And that happens a lot with me. Very astute observation. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think we've really discussed endings a lot on this show. And this was a very good lead into that. And I'm going to be thinking about it more because I think that it is a subject that deserves more discussion. Uh, I just don't know when I'm going to have something valuable to add to the conversation, but it's on my mind now. Endings. Endings are important. Well, speaking of endings, that was so easy I couldn't pass it up. Speaking of endings, we have reached the end of this episode of The Taylor Stevens Show. So thank you all very much for being with us, and we will be back with you again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week. <laughs>